This is lecture number two on Kings by Dr. Robert Benoit of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number two. Besides the reading from commentaries that I have listed for you today, I have an article on chronology in the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, which has been edited by J. Barton Payne. My purpose in assigning that is not that you work through detail by detail, because it's a very complex situation concerning chronology, but my purpose is to give you some idea of the kinds of principles that can be applied to these chronological data in order to resolve some of the apparent problems, particularly that section where he talks about accession year dating or non-accession year dating, and co-regencies when the year begins, whether it's a spring beginning or a fall beginning. Those kinds of things have gone a long way towards resolving most of the chronology problems. The other thing I would like is for you to get at least an idea of how you even arrive at absolute dates. If you remember in the early part of that article, Payne says that with Babylonian, Assyrian, and Egyptian chronologies, there are certain points where something that happens in Assyrian records can be tied to something that happens in the biblical material. That gives a fixed point because they can compare the Babylonian and the Assyrian records and be pretty certain that the dates that they have are accurate because Assyrian records go back and are tied to solar eclipses. With solar eclipses, you can pinpoint years using astronomical calculations. So if you can get a fixed date at a given point in the biblical chronology, as, for example, 841 B.C., when Jehu gives tribute to Shalmaneser III, that is mentioned in the Assyrian record, it's also mentioned in the biblical record. When you get a fixed point like that, then, you can work forwards and then back from it. Since you have the synchronous reigns, you can work back from Jehu's time earlier, or you can go forward from Jehu's time, and relative to those fixed points, you can establish the chronology for Israel. Another one of these fixed points is the Great Battle of Karkar, which occurred in 853, and Ahab, king of Israel, was involved in that. That gives another fixed point. My purpose in these examples is just to give you some basic ideas of chronology and how synchronizations can be done. You can spend a good part of your life if you want to master the details of the complexity of some of these chronological problems, and some of you may go on to do that. Okay, what I want to do from here on is take that outline of First and Second Kings and start working with the text of the Kings itself. I'm not sure how long it's going to go, but I'm going to emphasize in some detail the United Kingdom under Solomon, which is Roman numeral one of your outline. I think there are things in that section that can be noticed and that in principle really apply to much of the rest of the material in First and Second Kings. I think that material on Solomon is of particular importance. In fact, I will probably spend more time on Solomon and then more time on Elijah and Ahab than on any other one section in the book of Kings. So A in the outline is introductory material. This is on your outline of 1 Kings. I have two subpoints there. Number one is Solomon's succession to the throne, 1 Kings, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 12. 
That's our first section. Now, some comments on that section. I'm not going to read through the entirety of it. You've already done that and read the commentary on it, so I think you're familiar with the basic contents that's in this section. And again, I repeat, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 12. In that section, the basic question is, who's going to be the successor to King David? That's a question that appears in that section. It's a question that's not new to this section. It's a question that had been addressed earlier. In fact, it had been addressed even before the birth of Solomon. Even though David had numerous sons, the Lord told David that he would have another son. This was before Solomon's birth who would be king after him and build the temple, or the Lord's house. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, I think you would say, of the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, which is really one book, but let's look there. Here the Lord establishes his covenant with David and says he will have a dynasty that will endure forever. But in the context of that promise, in verse 12, the Lord says, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, if you compare that with 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8 to 10, you read there, and I'll quote. He's saying this to David. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not the one to build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name." So you see, it was made eminently clear by the announcement of the Lord to David long in advance of the events of 1 Kings 1 and 2, where you are really at the point of succession. It had been made very clear that Solomon was the one who was going to succeed David and also be the one who was going to build the temple to the Lord. Now, when Solomon was born, he was given the name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 to 25. This is after the incident of David and Bathsheba that Nathan had rebuked David for in chapter 12. You read in verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. And as I said before, Jedidiah means loved by the Lord. So Solomon has that special place that is given to him. He is the one to succeed David. He is loved by the Lord. He is to build a temple. He is designated successor to King David. Now, it is interesting that that particular privilege, you might say, is given to Solomon because it is probably not what you might expect. Solomon, for one, is not David's firstborn son. You might expect in natural descent that the firstborn would have the right of succession. 
But you remember that it's a rather common kind of thing in Scripture that this not be the case. It was not Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn, but Isaac that was the promised, or the line of promise, as far as the promised seed was concerned, and Ishmael was born before Isaac. It was not Esau, who was the firstborn who would carry forth God's promise, but it was Jacob. It wasn't Jesse's oldest son that Samuel anointed to be king. Remember, when Samuel went to Jesse's house, and he had all the sons of Jesse come before him, the older ones came forward, and they didn't even think to bring David before Samuel, because they didn't think that he would count. He was the youngest. Yet, he was precisely the one, the youngest one, that the Lord has chosen to be king. So you have many examples of that sort of thing, and it seems to me that God desires to emphasize that the outworking of his plan of redemption is not to be attributed to human rights, powers, or abilities. It's nothing of that sort, but it's the Lord's work, and it's his sovereign disposition that carries forward his work of redemption. Now, of course, God's choice is not always met with acceptance. Remember, Esau, as well as Isaac, worked against God's sovereign choice. Esau wanted that blessing, and Isaac was ready to give it to him. But in the midst of all that intrigue, you remember, that blessing that was intended for Jacob really came to Jacob, even though Esau and Isaac were working against it. In 1 Kings 1, you have a similar situation in the sense that the Lord had designated a successor, but Adonijah wasn't ready to accept it. So the question really in 1 Kings, in the first couple of chapters, is will God's will be followed in the matter of succession to David, or will some other considerations prevail? Adonijah was the oldest remaining son of David, or at least it appears that that's the case. You remember that Absalom, as well as Amnon, were dead. Amnon had violated his sister Tamar, and for that Absalom had had him killed. Later Absalom went into exile, and when he came back he instigated a rebellion against David. Eventually Absalom was killed in the aftermath of that rebellion. So both Amnon and Absalom were dead. Adonijah now makes his move to succeed David to the throne. He undoubtedly knew that Solomon was the designated successor. But you read in verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 1, quote, Now Adonijah, whose mother was Hagit, put himself forward and said, I will be king, end quote. He put himself forward. I think we could say that he was not satisfied with the place that God had given him, and he wanted to usurp the throne for himself. So what's he to do? He plans a revolution, in essence, and I think here you see a real contrast between Adonijah, who puts himself forward, and then lays all these plans to take the throne. You see a real contrast between him and David, who even though David had several opportunities and had been designated by God to take the throne, he refused to do it by force. He wanted to receive it from the hand of the Lord directly. He did not want to kill Saul. He wouldn't lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed. I think you see Adonijah is ruled by a different spirit. He seeks the throne by intrigue and secret methods. You read in verse 7 that Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. Joab was a military commander, and of course Abiathar was a priest, 
And they gave Adonijah their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, who was one of the mighty men, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fatted calves at the stone of Zeholoth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah who were royal officials, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah the special guard of his brother Solomon. So Adonijah carefully picked who he was going to involve in this plan, people that he, for whatever reason, was confident would not betray him, but would support him. He gathers these people together to have himself proclaimed king. He seeks the assistance of Joab and Abiathar in verse 7, but he deliberately does not invite Nathan, Benaiah, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. But notice that he invites a priest to give religious sanction to his revolution. He wants to cover this thing with some religious sanction. So he invites Abiathar the priest, and he sacrifices sheep and cattle and fatted calves. So he attempts to use religious sanction to accomplish his own purposes, his own ends, and I think you could say that it comes to link the name of the Lord with this revolution, even though it's a deliberate violation of the Lord's expressed will. Chapter 1 from that point contains four conversations between two persons. The first one is in verses 11 to 14 between Nathan and Bathsheba. I quote, Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggit, has become king without our Lord's David knowing it? How then? Let me advise you, you can save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My Lord the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and confirm what you have said. So you see, Nathan was aware of what's going on, and he warns Bathsheba of the danger that Adonijah had for both her and for her son. That's in verses 11 to 14. In the context of that time, and probably even almost any time, it's not uncommon for throne usurpers to murder all other possible claimants to the throne in order to secure their position. So in a very real sense, Bathsheba and Solomon's lives are really in danger. So Nathan advises Bathsheba to let David know about what's going on. That's the first conversation, and again, that's in verses 11 to 14. The second conversation in chapter 1 is verses 15 to 21, and that's between Bathsheba and David. We read, So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room, where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed low and knelt before the king. What is it you want? the king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me your servant by the Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, padded calves, and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord the king, 
The eyes of all Israel are on you, to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his fathers, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. And that's the end of the conversation. So Bathsheba reminds David of the oath he has sworn that Solomon would succeed him. Then she tells him of Adonijah's revolution and the support Adonijah had from particularly Joab and the priest Abiathar. Well, then the third conversation is between Nathan and David, and that's in verses 22 to 27. Here's how it goes. While she, that is Bathsheba, was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived, and they told the king, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. Nathan said, Have you, my lord the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you, and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fatted calves, and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. Right now they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live King Adonijah! But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon he did not invite. Is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servants know who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? And that's the end of the conversation. So Nathan comes in, and I think it's a rather diplomatic kind of way to approach this whole issue. With David, he expresses surprise about Adonijah's being proclaimed king, and, as it were, to ask David if he has authorized this. The last and fourth conversation is verses 28 to 31, and that's between David and Bathsheba, and there the issue is resolved. We read, Then King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed low with her face to the ground, and kneeling before the king said, May my lord the king live forever. And that's the end of the conversation. So David gives orders then in what follows for Solomon to be anointed as king and to reign in his stead, and that is done. Zadok and Nathan anoint Solomon and blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon! And it's announced to all the people. When news of that reaches Adonijah, with that kind of strong support right from David himself, Adonijah realizes that his revolution is doomed, and he goes and he seeks refuge at the altar, most likely the altar on Mount Moriah, where the ark was housed in a tent. You read that in verse 49. It says, At this, that is, at the hearing of Solomon's being crowned king, all Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. But Adonijah in fear of Solomon went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. Solomon replied, If he shows himself to be a worthy man, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. 
But if evil is found in him, he will die. Now, in the early part of the second chapter, the first four verses, you have part of David's charge to Solomon that I think is quite significant, albeit it is lengthy. The first four verses, I think, you might call it a profile of the true covenantal king. I read, When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. And here's his charge. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, and keep his decrees, and his commands, his laws, and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me, where he said, If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. End quote. I think you can call that a profile of the true covenantal king. As David hands over the reins of government to Solomon, he gives what you might say a political testament to Solomon. It is a description of the essence of what his responsibilities were and what the true covenantal king should be like. Now, let's reflect just a bit on Israel's concept of kingship. I've talked to that issue in connection with the Old Testament history course on the rise of kingship in 1 Samuel chapters 8-12. to But I think it's important here as well that we take a look at this distinct concept of kingship that we find in Israel. If you remember, when Israel initially entered Canaan, they didn't have a human king. There was no royal palace. There was no royal throne, but rather there was a tent in which was housed the Ark of the Covenant. In reality, I think you would say the Ark of the Covenant was the throne seat of Yahweh, Israel's God. He's enthroned between the cherubim on top of the Ark, which at that time was housed in the tabernacle, as I mentioned. In reality, the Ark was the throne seat of Yahweh, who was Israel's divine king, and this was so different from any of the surrounding nations. There wasn't a royal palace. There wasn't a royal court. But there was this tent with an ark in it. And the king of Israel was the Lord. The idea behind that arrangement was the people would assume individual responsibility to follow the Lord and obey his commands. That is, to be obedient to the commands of the covenant and all that was spelled out in the Mosaic law. The assumption was here, you have Yahweh as the divine king. The people, individually, will take the responsibility upon themselves to be obedient to their covenant obligations, and that would provide for order and unity among the people, and for order and unity in the society in general. So they were to recognize the kingship of Yahweh. That was their responsibility. Israel didn't live up to that responsibility. They didn't follow the covenantal obligations. They turned away from them, and they repeatedly denied the kingship of Yahweh and turned and worshipped other gods. We find that already in the book of Judges, and we find it repeatedly there. And the nation went through that cycle in the period of Judges, of oppression and repentance and deliverance. But when you come to the book of Samuel, they're being oppressed in the early chapters of the book by the Philistines and also the Ammonites are threatening. The Philistines were to the west and the Ammonites were to the east. 
Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, is threatening, and they blame their situation on the fact that they don't have a king like the nations around them to lead and fight their battles. That's what the elders say when they come to Samuel, and we read that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So the elders requested Samuel to give them a human king. Samuel protests to them that to do that is to deny the kingship of Yahweh. But the Lord eventually says to Samuel to give them a king. So Samuel obeys the Lord's command. He gives them a king, but when he does, he is careful to define the role of the king in Israel so that in no way does it detract from the continued kingship of Yahweh. So I think what you say in Israel is that when human kingship was established, it was God's desire to use the human king as an instrument of his own rule over his people. It's not a king over against the Lord. It's a king as vice-regent, we might say. It's a king who is to be an instrument of the Lord's rule over his people. So it was important for every king in Israel that Yahweh be the true king and that the human king be subject to God's law and need to obey the covenantal requirements of the law of the Lord. So David says to Solomon to walk in the Lord's ways and to keep his decrees and commands as written in the laws of Moses. Now with the first king, Saul, it quickly appears that he's not willing to listen to the word of the prophet, particularly Samuel. He's not willing to be subject to the law of the Lord. There are a couple of incidents. There was the question of offering sacrifices before Samuel arrives, and that's in chapter 13. Then was the question of not following the Lord's instruction concerning wiping out the Amalekites, and that's in chapter 15. So Saul was rejected from being king. Saul is followed by David, and David, of course, is pictured, as we discussed last week, as the true representative of the ideals of a covenantal king. But he's not perfect. Even David had times when he placed his own interests, his own kingship, above his responsibilities of being that true covenantal king of Israel, and there are incidents in his life that where that is quite clear. I think the point with David is that he did not persist in his ways. He always returned to a readiness to be an instrument in God's rule. He repented when he deviated from that. So I don't think he ever lost the vision, you might say, of kingship as God intended it to be. He wasn't perfect, but he kept that ideal, and I think he had a clear insight into the true nature of the kingship as it was supposed to be in Israel. What you find here in chapter 2 of 1 Kings is that on his deathbed, he transmits that insight to his son Solomon in these verses, and you have something of that also in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, and following. 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 10, and following is a beautiful passage. It begins with David. The context here is different, although you notice that it comes just before he acknowledges Solomon as king. Again, that is in First Chronicles chapter 29, and this is verse 21 there. The death of David is in verse 26 of chapter 29. But let's go back to verse 10, and we read, David prays to the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise to you, O God, Lord of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. 
Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow, without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test a heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willfully and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever, and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. And that's the end of his speech. So I think you see the concept that David has of the rule of God as king, the rule of the human king as subordinate to the kingship of the Lord, and the necessity for the human king to have a heart dedicated to the Lord. Now David goes on and he says in verse 19, Give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands. Well, we go back to where we were looking, and that's in First Kings chapter 2, where David says to Solomon, Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways. Keep his decrees and his commands, his laws, and his requirements. So in those first four verses of chapter 2 of 1 Kings, you have this political testament, you might say, of David as the kingship is transferred from David to his son Solomon. Now, you can ask the question of when is the king of Israel a good king? I would say it's only when he subordinates himself to the kingship of Yahweh and places himself in the service of the kingship of Yahweh. How can he do that? He can do that only by walking in obedience to God's law. I think you can see at this point that in the last analysis, there's only one king who will ever conform completely to David's profile for the true king, and that points forward to Jesus Christ. Solomon wasn't going to do it, and David certainly didn't do it for himself. Ultimately, it's only as God himself comes and sits on the throne of David will you have someone who can fulfill the ideals of the covenantal kingship. So all of the kings of Israel fall short of the ideal, all of them. Even though David and Solomon are at the top of the list, you might say, of the good kings, they too fall short of the ideal. In so doing, they point forward to the one who will eventually come and sit on the throne of David and rule in fullness and completeness of righteousness and justice as the true covenantal king was intended to be. By the way, just as kind of a side comment, you can always ask the question, and many times it is asked, what's the relevance of all this material? What I'm trying to get at here is this redemptive historical perspective. When you look at it, when you put what's going on in the context, you see God's program of redemption. And the institution of kingship is certainly utilizing the program of redemption. 
ultimately, Christ comes as king, and these kings are pointing forward to that. But then you can go a bit further. You can ask the question, what is the significance of this profile of Israel's kings for us? Perhaps you can say there is a parallel between the kings of Israel and us in this sense. Just as the kings of Israel were to reflect Yahweh's kingship in their rule, so we are to reflect Christ's kingship in our lives to the world around us. He is the one who is to be ruling in our lives, and it's only as we subject ourselves to all that God's word requires, all the commands of Scripture, and live a life of obedience that we can reflect that kingship of Christ in our own lives and reflect it to those around us in many different ways. Now, that's just a side comment. Well, let's go back to our text, which is now verses 5 to 12 of chapter 2. It seems to me that you could say that just as the kings of Israel were to reflect Yahweh's kingship in the rule, so are we to reflect Christ's kingship to the world around us as he rules in our lives. But that's only possible for us as for the kings in ancient Israel as we subject ourselves to all that God's word requires of us. As we are obedient to his commands, then we can reflect some of that to those around us in a way that we live. I'm saying that, that apart from our full devotion to the word of God, it seems to me that there is a redemptive historical perspective that is very important, and you might say in a certain sense that all of these kings point forward to Christ in the sense that they fall short of the ideal. Only Christ will fulfill the ideal, but it still seems to me that there is a principle involved that the rule of Christ is the rule of Yahweh that was to be reflected in those kings. The rule of Christ is to be reflected in our lives. What I'm saying is that when you look at the Old Testament foreshadowings of Christ, you have the offices in ancient Israel that point forward to him. You have prophet, priest, and king. In Deuteronomy 18, we read that the Lord will raise up a prophet like Moses, and that's picked up in the New Testament, ultimately as indicating the coming of Christ, who was a prophet like unto Moses. But Christ is greater than Moses. So certainly the line of prophets also point forward to Christ. The same with the priests. Of course, Christ is a priest of a different order. He's not of the Aaronic line. He's a priest of the order of Melchizedek, who doesn't have the lineage through Aaron. But he performs the function of a priest in interceding and representing us before God. So Christ sort of combines all those three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Here we are just talking about the one, and that is kingship. Let me quickly make a few comments on verses 5 through 12 of chapter 2. In those verses, David instructs Solomon to deal with three persons. They are Joab, Barzillai, and Shimei. Of those three people, Barzillai is to be rewarded for loyalty when he helped David in the time of need, the time that David was fleeing from Absalom when Absalom rebelled against David. But Joab and Shimei are to be punished for serious offenses against David. I think we would say that David gave these instructions to Solomon not for personal revenge, but out of concern for Solomon's kingship, that it would begin on a good foundation. So first of Joab you read in verse 5. David says this, 
Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle, and with that blood stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. End quote. Well, it's pretty clear what he's saying. Joab had killed two commanders of Israel's army, Abner and Amasa, and he'd done that not in the context of battle. He'd done it in the time of peace, which means he had really murdered them. Later, he killed Absalom against David's command. David didn't want Absalom killed after Absalom's revolution, but Joab killed him. So David's instruction here is to take Joab's life. That might strike us as harsh, but I think it's rooted in Numbers chapter 35, verses 30 to 34. And that says, Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. Do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge, and so allow him to go back and live in his own land before the death of the high priest. Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who has shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. And then Numbers tells us that bloodshed pollutes the land, as we read. In fact, if you look generally in the Old Testament, there are three things that are said to pollute the land of Canaan. Bloodshed is one, that is the shedding of innocent blood. There is lawful and unlawful taking of life. I am talking about the unlawful taking of life that we call murder. Sexual immorality is another. If you look at Leviticus chapter 18, the whole chapter of Leviticus 18 is on unlawful sexual relations and perversions, and then you go down in verse 25 and you read, Even the land was defiled by these sexual perversions. Verse 24 says, Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And then in verse 27, again we're dealing with Leviticus chapter 18, Verse 27 says, For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were there before you. So bloodshed pollutes the land along with sexual immorality. The third one that pollutes the land is idolatry. We read in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 9, because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. Well, the Israelites defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood, and that's a reference to their idolatrous practices, and you also find that in the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 17 and 18. So that's somewhat of a digression, but the point here is shedding of innocent blood would defile the land. 
And I think what David is saying is that Joab's blood guiltiness needed to be addressed because if it wasn't, it could damage Solomon's reign. I think you see an example of that during David's time in 2 Samuel chapter 21. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, there was a famine for three years because Saul had put Gibeonites to death in violation to the treaty that Joshua had made with them when they came into the promised land. There was a peace treaty with the Gibeonites, and that peace treaty with the Gibeonites was violated. Gibeonites were put to death in a way that was unlawful for putting people to death, and that resulted in a famine for three years. So it seems to me that that's what's involved in this command concerning Joab. Well, let's take a break, and then we'll start the next section. That ends lecture number two on Kings by Dr. Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary.